Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. Hey, everybody. It's Peter Lehrman. Welcome back to Masters in Small Business M&A. It's a podcast that I've been producing for the last about year and a half. I'm super happy to have Brad Smith joining me today. Brad Smith is one of the founders of an investment bank down in Texas, Vertes Advisors. They're focused 100% on the healthcare category, and we're looking forward to diving in on all things healthcare as well as Brad's personal career. So Brad, thanks for coming on the show and giving me your time. Really appreciate it. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there's a lot of places to go. As we talked about offline, I think we may ultimately decide to do two recordings. Today, I want to get started with your transition from employee to CEO at the DME healthcare business. Let's start there. Tell us a little bit about just the transition from employee to partner and then from partner to, to CEO. And just take us back a little bit in time here. Just give, give the audience a little bit of placement for, for this. But you know, we'll start there and then we'll, we'll move forward from there. Okay. Easy enough. So kind of the bygone era of, I think it was 19, 1999. I was in school at Stephen F. Austin. Do you know where that is by chance, Peter? Have you heard of Stephen F. Austin before? I don't know where it is, but I've heard of it. <laughs> it's in the, in the piney woods of Nacogdoches, Texas. Deep East Texas, just a little ways above Houston. I was on, I don't know, probably my seventh year of college and maybe eighth perhaps. And I was working for a durable medical equipment provider that one of my old roommates had started years and years ago. And I was doing deliveries and we were primarily focused in mobility. And I, I, I took it A because I needed a job. But B, I, I really started enjoying it because as a poor college student, you're delivering mobility and different devices to elderly individuals who I could somehow, as a poor college student, time just right to be delivering them right close to dinner time. So somehow I could easily get my way in to have a home-cooked meal with most of my deliveries. So it was very self-serving, but it actually, <laughs> you got to eat, right? And I really got to enjoy spending time with these elderly patients and I liked what I started doing. And so when I finished school, finished school, I went to, I went to him and said, Hey, I, I like what you're doing. I know what you're, I understand the concept of it and everything. I, I want to open up a location with you. I was able to, I'd actually saved a couple bucks and I was able to borrow some money from my grandfather. And then I actually had a couple credit cards. And so I, like any kid, started a location with him in Tyler, Texas and maxed out my credit cards and borrowed some money, which I actually did pay back. 
And I've got a location going from scratch up in Tyler, Texas. And then after running it for I don't know, not too long of a period, I wind up realizing that my business partner didn't provide any help, didn't really know and didn't know what he was doing. And so I was able to buy him out and, uh, and then convert it into what we called actually Lone Star Scooters at the time. And uh, it took off right away. Had a lot of success. Fortunately, unfortunately, how you want to look at it from the start. And then I started, so I, I got that on my belt and said, I'm going to start franchising these. So I got a old school UFOC and started franchising and created a couple of franchises in Texas, Oklahoma, and a few other states. And ultimately realized that franchising wasn't a good, a, a good avenue. And, uh, but, I, but I kept opening up locations on my own. So I found myself. I don't know, maybe in around 2004 with about six, seven locations, something like that. And, and, and then I opened up DeNovo and, and operating these, I got, kept thinking, God, there's got to be an easier way to, to grow business than find a market and then just start everything from scratch. And about that same time, a gentleman in Tyler, a respiratory therapist who had a, a respiratory practice, naturally, came to me and said, hey, I'm looking to looking to exit, we'd be interested in buying it. And so I said, sure, let me look into it. And I wound up acquiring his business for, for a decent amount of money. And ultimately it turned out to be extremely accretive. They were, they were firmly in respiratory. We were primarily doing mobility. And I was able to capture that, learn what this gentleman was doing, learn how he took care of patients in the clinical side of it. And I was, I implemented in all my other locations. So it was this outstanding hit that was, that was just really creative for, for the whole business. And so I, I decided I need to grow this way. I, I need to stop growing organically. And I just need to grow through acquisition. My problem was, is I just needed money. And so at that time, private equity wasn't what it is today. And I actually went out and found a private equity, uh, a private equity and did a, a recapitalization of the equity structure of the business. How big was the business before you recapitalized it? Like how, how many people were part of the business before you started making acquisitions and before the private equity chapter? Just give us a sense for like, what was the size of the organization and who was involved other than you? Well, we started at Bootstrap. And so, I mean, it was just me to, to begin with. By the time we did the, the recap, I want to say there was around maybe 30, 40 employees, somewhere around there. Revenue, we weren't that big. We were maybe five, six seven million maybe when you say it was just you that's after you would bought out your partner or are you talking about just because it sounds like you used your own money to set up the first location even though you were partners with with that original employer of yours like you used the credit cards to set up your own location or you used the credit cards to buy your way into the original corporation that he'd set up i used the capital i had saved and borrowed and, and the credit cards which by the way, I don't know if you know this, you don't have to pay those back. They don't mind. But yeah, the, I, I used, he came up with, I can't remember what it was, maybe 30 or $40,000 each was something along the lines. And he came up with his, his half and I came up with my half and that's how we, how we started it. And so you guys split 50-50 on the new location and he continued to own 100% of his original business? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Oh, okay. Got it. And then as you expanded the locations from your location and his location to the next set of incremental locations, and you were doing that on a de novo basis, were you guys both buying into those or were those incremental ones just yours? That was just mine. At that point, I had bought him out and he had all kinds of other issues and, and, and other things going on that, and he wasn't any, unfortunately, he wasn't any help in the business itself. Got it. But he gave you your first opportunity, right? 
<laughs> well, that's not my first, but but yeah. So yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I had other had other businesses, but but yeah, he showed me a new a new kind of style of business. So yeah, you learn from everything. So and the original acquisition of the respiratory business that was in the same town of your first location that you created, right in Tyler, Texas, right? I've never been. That was just a, was that a chance encounter with that entrepreneur or was that someone you'd met in the trade over the course of time? Kind of a chance encounter. That's usually the way it seems to work out. It's always kind of seems to be chance encounters, but yeah, just someone I, I maybe had met before, but just going through, I think it was, it was a chamber of commerce, maybe one of the, they had a, a social or a function and you just kind of run into people and meet people and you had other, I had therapists and, and practitioners working for me at the time and said, Hey, you need to meet this, this gentleman. Yeah, just just by chance. At some point, you became a 30, 40 employee organization with five to six million dollars of revenue, having started out with just your location and then your original partner's location. Tell us just a little bit about that expansion before the, the private equity transaction, which we'll get to probably next. I mean, I know this is 20 plus years ago or at least 15 plus years ago, but do you, do you remember any meaningful moments along the way there in terms of key recruits or people that you brought into the organization that allowed you to to go from kind of just you and your original partner to to 40 employees or or what just how did, how did the organization develop and go from just you to to 40 employees what are some milestones I, I don't think there's any one significant it's more of a microcosm of multiple things I think part of it is you kind of look back and, and right after college you don't have any kids you don't have wife. There's just just yourself to kind of depend on and, and, and that energy that I remember. I remember when I first started, one of the things that kind of stuck with me is I, I set my alarm to wake up at whatever time in the morning to get up and get a good start to the day. And I'd always wake up before my alarm and go, oh crap, I don't have any money. <laughs> I don't have anything going on. I need to get my ass to work. Sorry for language. But I, I just, it was one of those, it, it just, you, you kind of motivated yourself to sit down and do that. And I think it was just being young and kind of the world's your oyster. So anything could happen. And so uh, it just, it was kind of a love of labor of, of doing that and, and being active, what you can create. The sky's the limit. And did you find yourself having outgrown that strategy when you had 30 or 40 employees? Or was that a, was that a, you had 30 people calling you and asking you what to do next. How, how did that, how did that work for you, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> how do you think it worked? That, that wears you down. <laughs> you get 30 to 40 problems that aren't your own, that are suddenly now your own. So That's why yeah, I'm asking. That, 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 that has a tendency to, to, to wear you down. But did you do, did you develop some team at that point? I mean, was there, were there, was there a number two that worked its way into the organization? Obviously one of the things that business owners think a lot about or should think a lot about when they're thinking about exiting, which we'll get to probably in the second half of this conversation is just if everything's running through them, that's not an ideal plan for, for how to be, be exit ready. So just where did you find yourself making progress along that, along that journey when you, when you were in the, the CEO seat yourself? I, I did. I, I had a couple of uh, number twos that were really well, really good. I, I, I'm, I've always been a big believer. I, 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 for whatever reason, I've been really good at delegating. I, I think I had to learn that lesson the hard way initially, but I've delegated very effectively and then empower people. I do that here. I've always done that. Empower people to make their own decisions, make their own mistakes. In fact, I applaud people a lot of times when they make mistakes. It, I, 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 I'm, I've told everybody in my organization, I'd rather you ask for forgiveness than permission. I want people to just go out and accomplish, do things on their own. I've 
been a big believer in entrepreneurs of people that can sit down within an organization and facilitate change and, 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 and do stuff. So if you can empower people, it, it makes a world of difference. And, and, and honestly, I've never been not, not an effort to try to be like the cool boss, but the boss that, Hey, let's look at outcomes as opposed to look at hours you put in, especially when it comes to sales folks. And if you, if they can get that sales output that I'm looking for or that, 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 that they're tasked to achieve, they can do it in two hours a month or, or two hours a week versus 40 hours a week. Well, good for them. I want outcomes, not hours. So with the acquisition you made, the respiratory acquisition, which was acquisition, was that acquisition number one in your life that you had? Yes, actually it was. That was my first acquisition I had made. Actually, I sold a business when I was 18. So that was the first time for me to sell a business. But my first acquisition was when I was at Lone Star. And it sounds like that first acquisition was a very successful one and gave you the confidence to to move in that direction. Tell me what, what was better about acquiring DME-related healthcare businesses versus doing it de novo? Like what, what made it so much better to pursue an inorganic strategy of acquisition and growth than to do de novo buildouts. Well, there's two two primary critical factors in it. One is I was doing growth. I'm just I was just growing de novo, and so we had a strategy of all right, let's look at the senior population of this town. Let's di- dive into the demographics. Let's dive into the of the city of the of it, and what impact we think we can make. And, and then we'd come up with some formulaic and, and, and overlay that with quantitative research of how we can justify certain things. And It'd work out great sometimes, and other times it wouldn't work out so good. And the acquisition was game changing because it was, you could look at, hey, here's what the company's going to look like a year from now. We know because we have three years of historical financials. We have three years of knowing that these patients are on service and we knew what we're getting into. And so, yes, it was expensive, but at the same time, we knew exactly what we were getting and we put in mechanisms to guarantee that we're going to get that. And it worked out. It worked out beautifully because there was just, it was a certain outcome. And that was just from doing it organically over and over again. That was the biggest game changers. You knew the outcome before you started. Yeah, there was obviously some variables you didn't know, but it was so much safer, safer, easier, and, and ultimately cheaper this way around. And then the second thing that really impacted is it was an adjacent space. As I mentioned before, we were just focused in mobility. And this was opening up the respiratory door for us. So all we had to do is update some, some licenses and our Medicare 855S form and a few other things like that. And, and then have the clinical licenses updated. But after that, it, it opened up a whole new field for us and said, well, hey, we're, we're doing mobility. We're doing respiratory. What else can we be doing now? It, it deepened our bench significantly. Well, a lot of people don't, I think, necessarily have like such an unequivocally positive experience doing all these acquisitions. Do you, was there something that you attribute just like sometimes I think, I, I think there's a lot of folks that some acquisitions are really successful and others are, are much more challenging. And it sounds like you had a different experience than that. Do you, do you, is there anything that you attribute that to? Uh, don't get me wrong. I've had negative acquisitions. Uh, this one was really good just because of the kind of the aforementioned factors. And, and, and yeah, financially, it, it made a lot of sense. And, and it was honestly, it's kind of right time, right place, kind of almost the medicine you don't know that you need that you get kind of thing. And it goes back to the aspect of I'm still, I'm, I'm still probably very early 30s, maybe like 20s at this point kind of the wor- world's your oyster and, and, and having that kind of positive attitude and, and everybody pretty much in the organization was very young, very eager, very wanting, eager to, to learn new things. And, and this was, this was something 
it was just completely green to us. And so it was, it's kind of the challenge. And, and you get, once you, when, whether you're not, whether you're passionate or not about healthcare, it's very hard not to, 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 to work in a healthcare organization and, and not feel empathy and not feel compassion to the people that you serve. And, and so this became another avenue to help serve that fragile population and, and help someone else. And that really, I'd say it petty before, and was talking about getting meals from, 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 from grandma as you were delivering equipment to her, but it, it really, you, you get an emotional attachment and, and you really start to try and champion and, and do more for, for these folks. And I'm sorry, I, I think I, I don't even have an answer to your question, but. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fine to hear a little bit about that too. It's great to hear about, you know, how the, the patients began to have a real impact on you because it doesn't sound like that's at all the reason that you you started your journey in this career. It was really more of like an opportunity for you to find some work while you were in college and you found a lot more meaning in the customer base or the patient base along the way. You mentioned the private equity transaction as like something that you needed to, you needed to find access to capital at this point. The business was not generating enough cash or I suppose was not capable of like raising its own sufficient amounts of debt financing for you to do acquisitions on the scale or at the volume that you wanted. Is that, is that the right way that to, to characterize the way you sort of ultimately found your way into a private equity partnership in the mid-2000s? A little bit of that. I'm also just kind of, by nature, conservative, especially financially conservative. And so to be quite honest, I didn't want to risk my money. I, I had, I, I didn't come from money, but everything I had wrapped up uh, everything that I owned was was wrapped up in in this business, and so I was heavily leveraged with this business. So if something went south or changed, and, and there was a lot of stuff going on too in the in the broader macro or the macro markets of durable medical equipment, there was some scandals going on, and it, and Medicare was rolling out some pretty significant changes, and so there was some risk at foot of Medicare policy changing, and then all of a sudden you're just left holding an, an empty bag, and so that. That was probably more of a driver than anything else to say, you know what, let's take some chips off the table and and let's do branch out and, and look at these other kind of post-acute care therapies that we can provide for folks and how they blend together with everything and then take that approach. And that's, I mean, ultimately what we did is, is I got in and, and, and I also kind of recognized the need in myself too, to like, and, and I, I couldn't contextualize it. I can now of, look, I was still running a very mom and pop business. And it was my naivety of not knowing it. And I was like, I, I know I need to be institutionalized. I take a more of an institutional approach. And, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And I, I knew I needed something more. And when this group approached me, it happened to be kind of really the right fit. The, the gentleman who, who ran the private equity, and he was a lead, lead investor on it. He, he was a former CEO of Farmerica. His name is Bob, Dr. Bob Nadella Bella. And he, he, he was basically helped guide me through a lot of stuff and was a mentor for, for, for lack of a better word, chairman of the board for the organization. And what was great about it is because he was former Farmerica CEO. He'd taken them from, I think, around like a quarter a share to $10 a share back in the, in the 90s. So he, he, he really knew how to grow a business and grow it effectively and to have someone like that that I could lean on and say, hey, Here's the situations we're involving. What, what do you think about this? What's your guidance? And, and it, it gave me a new way to approach businesses and new thoughts around really what I needed as, as, as a young entrepreneur. 
So he was the the lead private equity partner that you partnered with in the mid two thousands to to begin growing through acquisition on a on a repetitive basis, and and he found you or you found him. Honestly, I don't remember how it happened. I, I honestly don't remember. There was I, I know uh, he he had a couple other portfolio companies, Quantum, BGS Pharmacy Partners, and and a few others. And I think one of the one of the other companies, this sales guy, I believe, Owen Larson. I connected with him and then he connected me with Bob. I think that's how it happened. I, it's, once again, this is 2000, 2004, so it's close to 20 years ago. It sounds like it was like a really important mentorship relationship you know, that, that emerged between you and... Was he, was he the founder of this private equity firm? And, and private equity is probably a little bit more loosely formed because this is 2004, so private equity is not what it is nowadays. Yes, I mean, he was the principal of it. There were several other people involved and they had multiple portfolio companies that were primarily wrapped around pharmacies. But yeah, he was the he was the lead. So he had a, a team around him. And that's really, I, I learned a lot from, from, from him. You don't hear too many sort of like, I guess, mentorship stories in the world of private equity. It seems to be a little bit more of an arm's length relationship between the operators and the private equity investors. That sounds like a really great partnership that you actually enjoyed there and one that doesn't necessarily come along all the time. And to be fair, I would I, I say private equity. It's not committed capital. They're not SEC sanctioned. Like it's more of a operated more like a family office. So they had multiple platform companies. They had I don't think they, they didn't have a committed capital. They go out and get the capital on an as needed basis. So it wasn't it wasn't like someone that you see more nowadays. And this is also once again twenty years ago. So private equities really reformed a lot in the last two decades. How do you feel like private equity has reformed or, or changed or improved or worsened over the last 20 years? What are your observations of it, having been on the CEO side of it and, and now at Vertes? Kind of to your point, it's, it's a little bit more hands-off, I would say. Well, once again, it depends on the firm. There, there's so many different firms out there and there's so many different approaches. And, 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 and for better or worse, there's what, 15, 20,000 unique ones out there where, where previously there, there used to not be nowhere near that number. And it, it's certain, and it's, it's so funny, it's certain ones, they're very much so hands-on and you see a lot of involvement and knowledge and, and, and value add to it. Where others, you don't see that, that, that are, hey, we're, that they're really relying on that entrepreneur to become the, the expert operator in, in, in doing that. And, and I would say that's kind of a shortcoming to an extent. They, and, and, and something that's not really fully realized is how much private equity need operators because traditionally they're not operators. They don't know the intricacies of an industry, of a business, and they're looking at it from a high level and they're finance professionals. And so it really is a symbiotic relationship, whereas private equity is really good at raising capital. They're really good at execution of acquisitions and, and strategy, but they need those operators. And, and so I think as you see more of them, a, a, a better way to really distinguish is, is these guys that are a lot more hands-on. And coincidentally, we've done, I think just this year, we think we've done so far two acquisitions with search funds, which whom I really, really enjoy working with. And there's obviously some, some terrible ones out there, but there's also some really great ones out there. And, and these search funds and just so hands-on and, and, and so passionate because typically they are younger guys and, and gals that are, they're just, they're at that stage right there that anything can happen and the world's their oyster, which is, I love it. I love that enthusiasm. Yeah, maybe we can spend a little more time talking about search funds as as part of just talking a little bit about Vertes and the work that you're doing with with healthcare businesses. I think 
but before we spend time on your your current career advising CEOs in in the seat of a, of an investment banker and M and A advisor, I remember from our our conversation a week or two ago, you all ended up deciding to sell the DME business that you had developed and that you'd grown through acquisition. You ended up deciding to sell it in pieces, if I'm not mistaken. And usually, the play for small businesses that grow through acquisition is you buy the business, you improve some elements of it from an operational perspective and an organic perspective, you lay a foundation upon which to make acquisitions and start growing the business through some tuck-ins, and you continue to try and hope for organic growth in addition to to, to add on acquisitions. And ultimately, you can consolidate the, the EBITDA of the business and consolidate some of the operations of the business and ultimately sell it as a substantially larger platform business to some form of acquirer who's further and further up the food chain. And yes. <laughs> right. And, and and usually there's like some arbitrage there on the multiple of EBITDA or there's some arbitrage there on just the security and stability of the business or some arbitrage on the debt financeability of the business when it clears a certain EBITDA threshold. You went in the other direction here and, and ended up acquiring multiple companies, building a company through a variety of acquisitions, and then you ultimately re-disassembled <laughs> re it. Let's just hear a little bit about that, how, how that came about and and the outcome and just any thoughts you have on on that experience because it's you don't hear that nearly as much as as the as the opposite approach yeah it was a bit unconventional and it wasn't it, it wasn't done that way by design when we did when we created and ultimately it was called protest not protest because it was called a, a, a lone star biomedical was that the corporate holding the idea was Let's be a post-acute care provider. So when a patient gets discharged from the hospital, we want to be there to take care of all encompassing of what they needed. And so therefore, we did acquisitions in pharmacy. We obviously had DME. We had home health. We had skilled and unskilled. We had a sleep lab. We had essentially all these kind of post-acute care in the home. We're going to take care of you strategy. And so truly, they were, yes, integrated. But at the same time, they're very distinct different lines of business. And so in 2008, when we transacted, we, we will, ultimately we had some bad news for some Medicare regulation that was coming down the pike and it was ultimately Medicare competitive bidding. And, and, and we didn't get favorable news in, in that arena. And so basically the board said, you know what, just sell it the best way you can to get the best return. And ultimately it, it wasn't a great transaction. But it was a transaction nonetheless, and we were able to sit down and and, and, and so really my mandate was to chop it up and sell it in pieces because that was the easiest way to do it as opposed to sell it as a whole. Because I think partly is we were too unique as a whole of a business and it was very hard for one entity to, at least at that time, there was not as much consolidation as there is now, but at that time to sit there and say, hey, we can encompass everything because that was the problem that we're encountering to is people come in. So I like this part of the business, but this is part that we don't do. I like this part over here. We don't do this part. And so ultimately it, it wound up making more sense financially to break it apart and sell it in pieces. And, and I was able to really kind of time those simultaneously where we got rid of majority of them pretty much by, I think it was uh, July of 2008, somewhere around there. And then I've did such a good job. I was I didn't have a job after that, so I uh, went back and started doing clinical work. What was the clinical work you were doing? Was that part of the BMS consulting that's on on your profile, or was that was that a different? No. Well, I mean, yes. So I was doing so BMS consulting, which is a consulting company I had where I did uh, 
consulting work and turnarounds and a few other things like that. And actually some, actually ultimately some M&A work out of that. But I'm a, a ATP by training, assistive technology practitioner. And so I went and essentially I was the guy you didn't want to see. If you saw me, you're, you're probably not in pretty good shape. So I'd script out therapies or equipment for people typically with spinal cord injuries or some kind of really debilitating disease like ALS or people that recently become amputees so, so that they could have some kind of independence within their life, whether that's providing some kind of like high-end wheelchair in their house to some kind of therapy or, or whatnot. So I did that really for the first time ever. I had not, I've had the, I had the clinical designation, but I didn't, I never really used it that much. And then I started seeing patients, treating patients and, and realized I didn't like doing that. It was satisfactory. I mean, I, I like seeing patients and helping people, but at the same time, there's only so many like really obnoxious smells and fluids that can get on you when visiting with somebody that just kind of makes you say, maybe I should do something else. And is that when you began to kick around the idea of starting Vertess Advisors, the investment bank, or was that years before this? Oh, no, 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 no. This is well before. I was actually, so I was, so and then you mentioned BMS Consulting, which I haven't thought of in a long time. That was, I was using that at the time as well. So I was doing clinical work, but I was also doing some transactional work, just kind of small local work where I would help sell companies or I would turn them around and then sell them. So I would do different work within that. And then I got to the point where I was doing kind of enough transactions to really realize, hey, I really like doing transactions and, and I'm actually good at it too, to say, you know what, I, I really want to do this full time of, of just doing transactional work. And, and I didn't, like I said, didn't like doing clinical work to kind of push me in the direction to say, you know what, let's take a job and commit full time to doing transactional work. So I I kind of quit everything and went to work for a firm out in LA doing, once again, it was, it was healthcare focused transactions. And so I got hired with them and I think I worked there for about two, maybe three years doing transactional work. In, in particular, I was just pegged in healthcare. So I was obviously doing durable medical equipment, but then I, I was able to take advantage of do from my background, from pharmacy to home health, to home care, to any, anything kind of within healthcare that I, that I had knowledge of. And that's ultimately also where I, I met my late business partner, Tom Shramsky. And it was Tom that really had the idea for Protest. He, I remember he came to me and had me sign an NDA. And I was like, oh God, what am I getting into? And he said, hey, I got an idea. Because he, he and I were the number one and number two managing directors for this firm out in LA. And, and you're, obviously, it's a, it's a good-sized firm. There's probably 30-plus people there. And... And he just kind of sat down and he and I kind of pondered, well, why, why are you not like the, the top producing managing directors? We're not necessarily smarter than, than anyone else. And the, the aha moment was, is he, like me, has, was a former entrepreneur who started his own healthcare company. He also was a clinician. So he was a, a doctor. He's in, he was in the uh, behavioral health space, started his own behavioral health. He built it up sold it and, and exited out of it. I obviously had done the same thing with DME. And that was kind of the aha moment of, wait a second, we, we, that might be the reason why we, we, we had more success is we understand the space intimately because we've done it before. We understand what most of these entrepreneurs have gone through because we, we've, we've done it firsthand before. And I think also very importantly, we, we play in the space that we know about. And, and that was kind of a shortfall we saw for a lot of these other managing directors 
is they didn't really, they would take anything that came across and all of a sudden I get something across my desk of maybe like a dental practice. I don't know anything about dental. Yeah, I got teeth. I've been a dentist, but that doesn't qualify me to to know the nuances of a of, of market values of what particularly goes on in a dental transaction. And by having that intricate knowledge of not what happens in healthcare is just such an odd duck in itself. Whereas healthcare, you know, you, you look at it as like, okay, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna provide a patient with the service. And, and then from there, but, but prior to providing that patient service, I have to get a whole bunch of documentation, justify it, get some kind of pre-approval, then provide the service, then go off and bill for that service. You don't get paid for 30, maybe 45 days, and then you get paid 80%. And you wait another 30 days and get paid maybe the other 20%, maybe not. Then you have to go after the patient after that for 60 days. And it's, it's, it's such a convoluted weird, unusual system that there's just, there's a lot to know and understand. And, and then by the time you explain that, it's like, well, who on earth wants to get in healthcare? So anyways, I'll, I'll digress on that. But kind of knowing that in that, that, that pain that these entrepreneurs have gone through, I think really gave us that aha moment of, hey, we need to focus on what we know and, and, and we can add value to that as opposed to trying to be all things to all people. Let's just focus on what we know and do a good job at that. And so Vertes was born and Vertes continues to stay true to this model where the managing directors are all ex-CEO business owners from the, the healthcare category. Is that right? That's correct. So really for managing, for, for managing director, they have to have kind of really one of the three. A lot have all three, but they have to be a former operator or entrepreneur or clinician. And, and then everyone focuses in really what they know. And there's obviously a lot of overlap in different verticals and different areas. But, you know, I think that's something that a lot of firms are really short-sighted with is come out with, a, a, I don't know, clinical research, like a CRO. And, oh, hey, I can take that on. Well, what do you know about clinical research? Well, I know the theory behind it, how it works and kind of pragmality of it. But, but really, you don't know the, the nuance of it. And, and that's, I think, how we separate ourselves. And we separate ourselves by adding value because we know the nuance. And especially if you're doing, say, a private equity recap, you're educating this private equity probably more so, if not at least as much, as that entrepreneur. And, and, and having to explain that of what happens in the day-to-day from a clinical level to an operational level to a, a, a billing level to compliance to everything else. It's so convoluted. And there's really, especially in healthcare, there's nothing straightforward. There never is. For better or worse, that's just the, how we've set up the healthcare system. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about healthcare with an eye to towards like healthcare through the through the lens of either investors and or operators. I mean, maybe we'll just start with what is exciting for you in healthcare right now? What are you spending time learning about? Where are you spending your time within healthcare right now, either as an advisor or or otherwise? Just what's interesting to Brad Smith in, in the world of healthcare today? Honestly, I, I kind of COVID really changed the landscape of, of, of healthcare it, for, for the good. It's one of the few good things that came out of COVID is, is how we, as the U.S. or healthcare system, and as far as, and also internationally as well, COVID really advanced everything in the future. So, so telehealth, the metrics by which certain things are gauged. So everything just fast forwarded 10 years in the future. And that was really exciting. At least, at least for me, it was. But, but really kind of what excites me now is is there's, there's all these startups that actually have capital that didn't have capital before. 
And we're getting this level of innovation in technology that we never had. And so I'm part of an angels investment group here in Fort Worth. And it's probably half, not two thirds of what we see is, is, is healthcare focused startups. And, and it's just fascinating because traditionally you'd have to be a big Johnson and Johnson and, and have a big R and B team to, to go off and, and, and study a molecule, study something nuanced and new. And, and now these entrepreneurs are getting funded and getting capital to actually go out and solve problems that they're encountering in their own space and, and, and learn new things. So it's, it's a whole other dynamic. And, and I think it's really, it has, it, it, it's advanced healthcare just across the board in, in numerous avenues. And I think in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see just countless advances in the way we, we treat the body and treat the mind. And it's more of a whole body approach. I, I love those just aspects of it. And I also love the aspects now that people are really recognizing, look, that's make people comfortable in their own environment. Home care is something I've been passionate about for a long time. And it's something that I think that, that really a lot of people are waking up to to say, acute care is, it has its place, but that's not a long-term sustainable approach. We can provide good quality care in the home. It's going to give people better qualities of life and, and, and better outcomes for a longer period of time. Are there certain businesses that you've been following or certain sort of subspecialties or subcategories of healthcare? I definitely pick up on your enthusiasm for just like the overall pace of innovation and capital that's going into healthcare, but are there specific places or businesses that are, that are exciting to you and are specific categories where there's a lot of interesting change? Yeah. I mean, I like the newer, like the, the, the fragmented markets. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, tongue in cheek excuse me. And I, I like the fragmented markets because they're, they're so fraught with innovation. So like dental's one. Where it's just kind of, it, it's kind of almost like the Wild West. Durham's a little bit, something like that too. Certain markets are really consolidated, like, like complex rehab, where I came out of. It's very consolidated. There's not a lot of change and new approach and innovation happening here. So and that's because it's just been so consolidated over the years. So I, I like the stuff where it's uh, that the blue sky, the sky's the limit. And, and, and quite honestly, you hear a lot in, in the news about private equity and hey, the, the possible negative impacts that private equity's had. I, I kind of see it the other way around. Private equity's really streamlined a lot of these businesses, made them much more efficient, made them much more profitable, and as a result, has brought a lot better care to, to, to a, a lot of the different scenarios. And I'm sure there's, there's, there's bad stories out there, too. There's good. It's always good with the bad, and bad would be good. But I think that private equity involvement and continued involvement will help and has previously helped advanced just healthcare in general because it's supplied it with so much capital. Has it reaped huge rewards out of it? Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, it's, it's prompted innovation and in people to take risks that they wouldn't have normally taken as a business owner or as an entrepreneur or just as a clinician to sit down and say, well, hey, why don't I try this? therapy that may or may not work. And all of a sudden you're getting these outliers. And that's what's, that's just kind of neat to sit down and say, Hey, <laughs> just because we've done this approach for the past 50 years, that didn't make it right. So let's think about this and, and maybe there's something different we haven't tried before. And let's tap into that. And, and, and having capital that private equity can provide can be liberating to try new and aggressive therapies and approaches to, to, to other avenues of healthcare. Are you advising in the dental category right now through Vertes? Unfortunately not. So I, I don't know enough about dental to feel confident to doing it myself. 
around the perimeter in, in sleep, like oral appliance, yes, because we have some experience within that uh, with PAP therapy, invasive, non-invasive sleep therapy. But I kind of back to our guiding principle. We, we want to have someone who's preferably been a dentist, had their own dental practice and, and gone through an acquisition because it's, it, it, it makes such a big difference of having that intricate knowledge of seeing it, done it before. And unfortunately, no one from my team has that. So we, we haven't done a dental practice or, or transacted anything dental because of that. And, and we've had some opportunities. And, and quite honestly, we've, we've sent those over to folks that we know that can do a good job with that practice. It's, once again, there's, there's so much in the nuance and the market terms and everything else. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you guys assess business owners who you're going to potentially represent in a, in a sale transaction. We were talking about this before, pushing record. Obviously, when business owners are thinking about exiting their business, they're, they're ultimately going to talk to a set of advisors that they might get referred to or that they might research and find out about, or maybe they get an introduction from their lawyer or a wealth manager, whatever the sort of channels by which they, they ultimately get in touch with potential advisors. And sometimes they're doing this way in advance of a transaction and they're biding their time and other times it's a little bit more of like a, sh a shotgun all of a sudden they've decided they want to they want to sell the business for 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 either good reasons or bad reasons or, or or personal reasons whatever i'm just curious to hear a little bit about you've been running vertes now as one of the founding partners and now as a managing director working with businesses for almost 10 years now what have you learned about the kinds of business owners that you and the team at vertes want to try and compete to represent? Like what, what are the traits of those business owners or the traits of those businesses or the, what are the things that you guys are trying to, to lock in on that make you feel good about spending your time going on a 12 month, 18 month, maybe even 24 month journey? From Let's hope less. <laughs> yeah. And this is a, it's a great question and there's not a, a greatly quantifiable answer for it. We discussed this kind of length at our annual conference that we get together and work on best practices and stuff. As a firm overall, we have a very good close rate where we're, we're closing probably close to 80% of what we list. But at any given time, an owner is, we can't bind an owner into selling. And there's no scenario in which would be plausible, which you could. So it's, it's, you have to find that owner that's truly ready and willing to transact. And so we've really kind of racked our brains to try and figure out well, what are those qualities in it? And in, in, in some stuff you look for, or at least that we look for is, hey, an owner that's, that, that, that's really ready for whatever that next step is, whether that's a retirement or that's moving on to another project or, or really hit a, you know, we, we had one we transacted earlier this year that it was a gentleman and his sister, his sister and they, they built this business up to a 20 million, no, it's a $25 million revenue business. I said, we're just taking this as far as we can get it. We need someone else to really take that we can pass the baton to and take it to the next level. And, and he truly meant it. And, and that's always the hard part is finding someone that kind of truly means to, to, to do that. And that was actually, we wound up selling to a search fund for, for, for that one individual. So they were able to stay on with a minor role and, and, and keep going, keep going forward. So we do a couple things. One thing that we do really for us is we do valuations. And a lot of times we'll, we'll charge for valuations, but if someone's serious about coming on with us, we'll, we'll waive the fee and do a valuation. And, and ultimately that valuation is for that managing director more so than it is that potential client. I want to know that when we go through and start getting in the numbers and going into detail of everything, 
people start talking and you really start getting their motivations, what's really irking them because everyone's a seller at the right price. But we want to sit down and say, look, if we take this to market, here's what we think it's going to get transact for. And here's the nuances behind it. So what type of buyer is going to be, what type of the, the structure is going to be, all, all those little details. And I want to hear from them that this is their expectations, that we're meeting that that that's going to be satisfactory. So that's kind of the first line right there is let's pass that threshold. But really, it kind of boils back down to, are they truly ready? And there's, once again, it's more of a gut feeling to kind of figure that out. I, I knew that. And then the other thing that I, I guess we had really identified is, are they willing to listen? And are they willing to do what you tell them to do? Because we do this all day, every day. I still love it. I still get a kick out of it. It's still fun to negotiate stuff. But it's a lot more fun when someone really buys in 100% of what you're saying and it will do exactly that because I know the little tricks that sit down and, and, and cause these buyers to just eat out of your hands. And if they're willing to really go all in and listen to you and do what you say for them to do, it, it makes these transactions be just that much more fun. And then you can achieve these just crazy outcomes. We had one, not this December, but the December before that we transacted and we got a, a 17 and a half times EBITDA. And it was just, it was so much fun because it just got out of control as far as like dollar wise, very fast. But it was because they really bought in and they listened to what I was telling them to do. And, and, and when you get into stuff like that, it's just, it's kind of defying rules. And that's always like to be on the outlier. If I can find something that I can be outside the norm and do something that's, that's really neat. And it's set these, these guys up for, for, for life with what they exited with. But it was just fun getting outside the market norms and, and doing unique things. So I think kind of the big factor is if they will listen. And it's, and it's kind of sad that the amount of companies out there that you see with their, they're doing well, they're 50 million in revenue. And these owners just surround themselves with uh, yes men. And whatever they say, uh, they have a whole team around and say, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> and I'm usually the first to point out that's a terrible idea. Don't ever do that under any circumstance. But What are some bad ideas that are popular? <laughs> oh, crap. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Right now, coming to mind, you always hear these people, inevitably, when I'm going to transact, and people always sit there and say, well, I know who's going to buy us. I know exactly why. And I've yet to ever have that work out. People always say, just go to this one particular buyer. They're going to buy us to the perfect fit. And inevitably, I will include them, obviously, in the process. But I've never, ever, knock on wood, once had that ever work out where, where that, that one right buyer is going to buy them. Because, and that goes back to people don't know what's going on in, in, in these buyers, in particular strategic buyers, what's happening within the business at any given time. But they, they'll just sit down and, hey, Use this strategy. And I, I love kind of laying out strategy and, and, and approach and, and tell them to do something and they just do the exact opposite. So that, that, that has a tendency to happen. What do you see, Brad, in the way of like, what is the CEO or the owner's involvement in the transaction process when it's a Vertest deal? So if you guys are running a deal, what do you guys tend to involve the CEO in or the business owner in? And like, what, what role are they playing and what role are, are you all playing? And, and just where are you advising them, but they're the one sort of across the table having the conversations that need to happen or where are you guys in that role? I'm just curious to sort of how you describe what you want out of the owners in a process that you're running versus what you're going to put on your, put on yourselves to, to execute on their behalf. That's a good question. I mean, we're, we're the heavy lift. 
So we're, we're going to be the ones doing the majority of the work and everything. And, it, and it, honestly, it depends greatly on the outcome they're looking for. So if they're looking to just sunset and have a strategic trans, strategic buyer acquire them and they're looking to exit out, that's going to be very different than, say, a private equity recapitalization where they're going to be the, the platform company. So, I mean, we're, we're the ones orchestrating, creating the marketplace, orchestrating the strategy, going through, doing, doing everything from start to finish. And then their role, once again, varies on the kind of exit they're looking for. So if, if, if it is a platform investment and it is a private equity recap, then I'm going to have them a lot more involved because they need to be involved. They need to understand the ramifications of their decisions. And I sit there and preach to them. They always look at it from the opposite approach. They're always saying, well, what's, what, what's the amount we're getting for this terms? And then the cultural fit. And like, that, that is always the exact opposite approach. You need to have the right cultural fit because if you have the right cultural fit, the right minds that think alike, that get along, that 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 add to each other, one plus one equals three, then you can achieve pretty much anything at that point and, and, and overcome any obstacle. The second most important thing is terms. You've got to have terms will absolutely make or break a deal. And, and 98% of people gloss over terms altogether. And I can tell you some horror stories of people uh, just glossing over terms. And then finally, third is price. Price should be the, it's always everyone's top thing they're worried about, but it should be the, the third most important thing that they're concerned about. At the end of, I would say probably 90% of our transactions, our clients typically have enough money to, to do whatever they want for typically the rest of their lives. And people get so hung up on getting an extra couple million dollars here or, or a couple notches on the belt here. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, that's not going to change your lifestyle. To, to squeeze out an extra couple million dollars is not going to change your lifestyle whatsoever. What will change your lifestyle is the culture and the legacy that you're leaving of that company. And if you can find that good fit with the right terms, that's going to make much more of an impact on your life going forward than, than an extra two or even five or even $10 million in your pocket. Do you feel like that message lands with your clients once you've had a chance to sit down with them or do you feel like sometimes it lands and sometimes you, you can't get them there <laughs> sometimes I, I hope it does I, I i seem to preach that a lot and maybe half the time it lands other half the time it doesn't i think after we're saying oh that's nice i still want top dollar which obviously we want too but from being and going through it coming out the other side at the end of the day the quality of life is much more important if you're happy with where you are or where you're going, that, that's worth more than money. Can you talk a little bit about culture assessment and assessing and, and selecting for culture fit? I'm sure that some of this is a little bit abstract and there's, there's obviously whatever that feeling is in your gut, but what, what, have you, what have you put together for your clients in the realm of culture fit as given how important you believe it is and how much you try and persuade your your clients to to prioritize it at the top? Yeah, yeah, I mean you're right. It's a lot more nuanced, and it's a lot more just kind of feeling in your in your gut. But I, what I really encourage them is everyone come, brings money to the table. That's that's what an acquisition is. They're bringing capital to the table. So just try and take that off and look at what else can they provide. And that's a question I usually pepper my clients with questions to say, "Hey, ask these questions." And what does day one look like? What does day 100 look like? What is your philosophy with, with, with this and that? But really, it's, and I think you learn more about asking off the, cup, off the cuff questions and seeing how people react to it. So you want someone that's, that 
ultimately you want to get the, the, the magic formula is one plus one equals three. If you can sit down and find a, a partner that can see your business and from a different angle, they're going to come up with different solutions than you come up with, which is very powerful. Whether the right solutions or wrong solutions, at least it gives you a different angle to look at an issue because there's always going to be issues. But if you can look at it from a different perspective, you might have a different appreciation for it and you might have a different solution that you're not even thinking about. And that's so powerful. Some of my favorite acquisitions we've done are these adjacent providers. So you have someone that's just in home health and then a, a, a durable medical provider acquires them or a health IT acquires them. And so that's someone that comes from a completely different background, a completely different perspective, and they see it for something completely different. And that's what's really, I think that's what's really neat is when you start seeing those. And that's what really starts to create true value is, is when you approach it from a different angle. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find that. Honestly, the best way is to kind of old fashioned to go and go have a beer. You really get to know someone after they get a drink or two in them. They're a lot more forthcoming and, and you want to see what, what they're thinking, what they can add value. And there's also the quantifiable ways, I guess we will say, that we have learned in the past. Is, uh, we ran a process with this one group out of Florida. Management meetings, everybody just clicked. All the owners of this firm clicked. The owners of all the private equity clicked. And all the private equity was just healthcare-focused practices. They all had committed capital. They all had great board C-suite leaders. They checked every box. And my client was like, how do we pick? Every, every one of these is the, the, the bell of the ball. Everyone's beautiful. And at first, my, my, my thought was, well, that's your problem. I got you here. You got a great problem to solve. But then I started thinking more about it. And, and it kind of dawned on us. Let's go look at their LP base. And that was one thing that we found that was just really, really interesting is that LPs, we started, we, we pulled the LP base up for each of them and looked at the top, I think it was the top 10 LPs for each of the firms. And obviously there were healthcare focused firms, so, but the top ones that we found that we went with, ultimately you looked at the number one investment was I think UHC, number two was BCBS, number three was a big hospital system. Number four was Aetna. They were all healthcare providers, healthcare insurance providers. And that ultimately really helped weigh the decision when you're trying to stack up essentially what people see now completely apples to apples was that prevailed because at the end of the day, this was a national provider. And one of their biggest issues was getting contracts into all these, all the 50 states that they, that, that they work in. And the, it was very powerful because at the end, the CEO was able to say when he needed to get in Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, he could just pick up the phone and call the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield Illinois and say, hey, by the way, you're, you're the largest or one of the largest investors in this business. We'd like to be in network. And that was just such an eye-opening game changer there to, to, to just really look at a different way to, to size up. How does this make sense? I love that approach. I mean, have you, is that, is that part of the, the standard punch list now on every one of your transactions to examine that? We, we, do, we do definitely take a look at that. That is something that we ask now of everybody, yes. And getting a beer, when, when should the CEO or the owner get a beer with these different prospective partners in your, in your, like where in the process is that too late, too early, just right? It depends on the process you're running, but before the LOI. I, I think it's always a great idea. I know the LOI is not binding, but it sets the, the precedence of the entire transaction. And, and essentially, you're, you're, you're getting in bed at that time. 
yeah, it's non-binding, but but that's you really need to have be on the same page and then be of the same mind at that point in time and have uh, you'll see eye to eye and have that understanding. Let's talk a little bit about the way you you think about buyer outreach. You just mentioned just a minute or two ago, like some of the most interesting transactions that you've seen or advised on and led yourself or had someone on your team leading are ones where you have this like heavily adjacent acquirer end up coming out of left field or it's not necessarily the person who the entity that you would guess and you also mentioned that a lot of times your clients will say let's sell it to this firm like they're definitely the perfect buyer and never once has that ended up being the the clairvoyant forecast that it was laid out to be so what does that mean for your process i mean are you a believer in a in reaching out to a large number of buyers because of that how do you think about who you're going to reach out to in the world of buyers as you said tens of thousands of private equity firms there's tons of corporate acquirers you have search funds in the mix now too which brings something really interesting and unique to certain transactions how do you approach how wide or how narrow you go and what informs the decision that you and your client make on a on a given transaction for how you approach the market so it it depends on our client does it depend on their sensitivity to going wide or does it depend on something else most of the time it depends on their sensitivity to going wide there's there's a lot of folks that are just very secretive i've had transactions before where he said two buyers you can go to these guys and these guys and that's it <laughs> like really so what do you do there uh, you go to those two guys you do what your client wants you run a process with those two and see what the outcome is that you get i'm just favorable sometimes it's not and that's really their decision it goes back to the very beginning so early conversations i have very very beginning with every client is What's the outcome you want? What's your motivation for doing this? At the end of this, where do you want to be? And, and you, I really try and stress, there's no wrong answer. There's, there's no, what you want is what you want. Great. Really, if you can, the, the more you can illustrate that to me, better outcome I can get. And then once again, it goes back to that trust. If you can trust in me and say, hey, let's look at these different approaches. That, that usually produces a better outcome. Them being able to let me do it and, and, and listen to me and say, hey, Let's do this. Because, yeah, you have certain people that, hey, I just want to exit out. Okay, that's probably going to be a strategic. Let's just go, go down that avenue. But, but the ones that sit down and, and basically just give me as much slack as I want, those are the ones that get really fun because that's when I start kind of getting more and more creative and say, well, hey, what? Let's, let's really understand the business that you're doing. And then what's, what's a different value add and, and bring in those adjacent buyers? Because that's where it does really get interesting is when you sit there and, and have these people that are coming from a different element and it, and it adds to them and it just gets fascinating in, in, in those outcomes. So we had this one transaction that two gentlemen that were, they're younger and they had this business that just grown like a rocket ship. And they wanted a private equity recap. They wanted just to do private equity. I said, great, let's, let's do that. But, but I also want to bring in some strategics because I want some strategics because they're going to offer more money for it. And I want to hold the, the private equity feet, feet to the fire so we can get higher valuation for it and came down to it and we had essentially four LOIs that we were going round and round with. Three were private equity and one was a strategic and we were stuck at around 60 to $65 million and we just were kind of round robbing for, it seemed like forever, it was about two weeks and finally that private equity, I done the private equity, excuse me, the strategic said, you know what, we're tired of this. We'll give you $85 million for it. They went from 
just everyone was stuck at 65 million. They just added an extra 20 million to it. And my client said, I said, well, I know this is not what you want. You want private equity. And they took them all the two seconds and say, we're, we're sold. <laughs> we're to them. And, and we did. And so it, it wasn't necessarily exactly what they were looking for. And it wasn't something that we had expected, but it, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Hopefully they got the culture and terms right on the $85 million offer as well. The interesting part is the day before close, they said, hey, we got a little bit of a surprise. We want you guys to come and be and run the company. You, you, want, you, you two want to be the CEO and want to be the president. And so they took over the whole publicly traded company. Wow. And that's what they wanted as well? Or they were, they were pleasantly surprised or they had to think that one through? Or? No, they, 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 were, they were fine with it. They enjoyed that. So yeah, they were wanting a platform anyways. And they got, they got a lot more than what they bargained for. Let's talk a little bit about search funds, maybe to wrap up the, the conversation. I wouldn't have talked about them if you hadn't mentioned them. You like working with search funds, at least it sounds like you are interested in working with them, at least in certain circumstances, because usually the, the search fund is led by someone who's young and very hungry to go into, typically into the CEO role. But yeah, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on search funds. We obviously at Axial, we serve search funds. We also hear a lot of positive and negative feedback on search funds from investment bankers who are trying to get a deal done with a high degree of certainty and that feel unsure about how to take search funds seriously or not to, and when to take them seriously, what kinds of processes to potentially take them more seriously in versus others. Yeah, tell us, tell us how, you're, how you're working with search funds. There's, it's a rapidly growing category of acquirer. And so I'm, I'm just interested in hearing what you're doing and how you're working with them. Yeah, I think they're great. I've always been a big fan of any entrepreneur. And, and Search Funds is, is, is absolutely an entrepreneur to be able to take a company from whatever level they're at to, to, to that next level. And I've had good experiences and bad experiences. I think we probably transacted with maybe, I honestly don't know how many, I would say maybe close to a dozen of Search Funds. And like the last couple of ones, they've been actually really wonderful from professionalism, from, from as professional as possible to just dedicated and committed um, and really knowing the stuff. The scary part of like fundless sponsors and search funds is that extra layer. Are they going to be able to get the capital that they need? Are they going to be able to raise it? Are they going to be able to, to, to pass those thresholds within that? And that's always, as an investment banker, your job is to deleverage as much risk as humanly possible. And that's just something that's easy to factor out from, a, say, a committed fund. The experiences I've had, for the most part, with search funds have been extremely positive. Once again, I have a passion. I love that these kids are out of school and they're aggressive and they want to go out and put their stamp on the world and their heart's in the right place and they want to grow and, and grow business and, and, and take kind of the bull by the horn. So I, I really enjoy that. And a lot of these, like I said, they're, they're very prepared, very professional, and I've, I've done quite a few transactions. And for the most part, we, we go back and look several years later, those transactions, for the most part, have worked out quite well. Do you find yourself having to persuade your clients to entertain that, that buyer or does it tend to just sort of work itself out for certain transactions as being ideal and others it's not and it's, it's pretty self-evident? For the most part, you, you got to persuade them for the most part. They don't quite get the model and, and see a lot of risk in that, which to your part there is. But there's also a really good area too, because a lot of times you'll have it. 
very nice, solid company that maybe has some kind of legacy management that doesn't want to stick around, but they're not really big enough to be a platform investment. Maybe they're sub 5 million of EBITDA. We see a lot that are more along the lines of like two to say 3 million of EBITDA. It's just a little too small for a private equity platform. And, and especially if they've been flat. And a lot of times you, you kind of look in and, and once again, it's kind of about knowing your, your industry and the verticals you're operating in. You can kind of look underneath the hood and say, well, the owner really hadn't been engaged. They haven't done certain things that they should do to really properly grow the business. And that just might be a function of where they are in life, where they are with the business. You know, I get it. People get burned out doing the same thing day to day. Is I can, can burn a lot of people out, especially if you're dealing with Medicare, Medicaid, and constant cuts and regulations and, and onerous paperwork. Yeah, that can wear you out. And so it's easy to become disenfranchised and be flat. They'll have a, a flat profit. And where a, a committed capital private equity is going to really look for, hey, here's that growth, here's that spark. And hey, that everything could be in place. And the spark that needed is that young leadership that's going to be aggressive and talented in there. So that's why I think there's a a great place for, for search funds. And I, I, I really do like what they do. I think that's a great place to, to wrap up. I'd love to just close with, with maybe one final question, which is just if you could share maybe who has been sort of the most influential person on, on you in your professional career, whether it's somebody who you've worked for or worked with, or whether it's somebody who you've never met, but, but who's been super influential on the career that you've had and the career that you've built for yourself, who would that be and why? I'm going to start operating during a lot of, but I would say, you know, someone I always really, I, I, I looked up to a lot was my grandfather. My grandfather just always was super supportive, borrowed money from him to start by actually I think two of my businesses. And he had great business acumen. He actually, he and his colleagues invented the first mutual fund. It was back in, I can't remember, like pre, pre-World War II, the Detroit Auto, or the Detroit Investment Club. And it was him and his buddies, and I, I've read a newspaper article from back in the day about how they, they would take their, their proverbial beer money and channel some of that away from beer into investing, and they would pool their money together and invest in stocks. And ultimately, it's what started the first mutual fund. There were some other articles after he, after he passed about that. That was really unique. But he always just had a great, great head, a great mind for business. And it really was just early on, very encouraging for me to take an entrepreneur aspect in life and in how to budget money and, and, and run a business. And, and for that matter, just treat people. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important things is just treat people and, and communicate effectively with them. I love that answer. Brad, thank you so much for about an hour and 15 minutes. And it's just been great to be with you. Great to learn about you and great to learn about Vertes and all of the chapters along the way. Really appreciate your time and looking forward to sharing this episode with with all the listeners. So thanks again. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Peter. I look forward to getting up to New York and seeing you sometime, having a beer with you. Come on up and visit. I'll be here. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Axial.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. 
Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at axial.net. I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.